This is a Federal News Network podcast. Patent applications are on the rise. Successful ones require knowing what else is out there in an investor's field. That's called prior art, which is also growing. To help inventors navigate and understand prior art, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office has enlisted artificial intelligence technology from IBM. The project is called Intellectual Property Advisor with Watson Demonstration System. Here with details from IBM's expert labs team, Graham Katz. Mr. Katz, good to have you on. Thank you. What is the purpose, mainly, for USPTO in deploying the system? And then we'll get into how it all works. You know, a patent is fundamentally an exclusive right granted for an invention. An invention's a new way of doing something. And so when you apply for a patent, you need to assure the patent office that the idea is novel and new. And that means that there, it's not covered by something that's already out there having been patented or published. And that is called prior art investigation. So a patenter, to decide even if they want to pursue the patent application or an investment in the patent application, that's a significant investment in time and money for an inventor, would want to determine whether their idea is actually novel. And determining the novelty of the expression of an idea is the prior art investigation. And so we have been trying to facilitate the prior art investigation for novice patenters with our new AI technology. And is one of the issues the fact that because of the internet and because of the explosion in all kinds of methodologies that are online, that prior art itself has exploded versus what it was, say, in 1890, if you had a new valve gear that you'd invented for a locomotive? Exactly. So prior art has expanded. There's investigation going on around the world, right? There's patenting in the U.S. that's governed by the U.S. Patent Office, but there are patent offices all over the world that need to be investigated for prior art. And there's obviously the scientific literature, which is expanding tremendously, all of which needs to be investigated. Our tool, the tool that you talked about, is a demonstration project, and we're limiting the data that we're looking at to the U.S. patents. But fundamentally, what you say, Tom, is correct. There's a huge growth in prior art because there's just much more inventing going on. And just as a point of reference, could this technology also be deployed to the patent examiners? Because don't they have the issue of exploring prior art? Yes, absolutely. We, of course, at IBM would love it if the U.S. Patent Office were to use our technology in their patent examining work. We have used it internally in our patent investigation. As you may know, IBM is a very large patenter. We've been the leading U.S. patenter for the last, I think, 29 years. And we have large IP development team internally, and we've used our AI technology internally to do that investigation. As I said before, that's something you want to do before you pursue the application to make sure that you have a novel idea. And tell us how the technology works. I mean, what data do you even know what to go for in order to find out if there is similar prior art? How does this all work? Our tool, it's designed to make the process of sort of patent landscape analysis accessible to the general public by using the AI technology. And there are two aspects of the AI technology that we've brought to bear. One facilitates the querying and document retrieval, as we call it. That uses natural language processing to analyze the data set. So analyze the set of patents that we've loaded into the system to see what the key topics are for each patent and the key claims. And the other is what we call the natural language query system, which takes key terms in your query and finds the patents that are relevant to those. 
So that's one piece of the technology. That's a document assessment. We also have a piece that analyzes the similarity of patents, how similar they are using natural language processing and AI. So that's one of the technologies that's called the Watson Discovery Technology. And it's a technology that's actually based on, you may remember a number of years ago, we had a system that played the Jeopardy game. Yes, I saw it in action myself, actually. So these are products that came out of that research. That system had to find all the information in the large set of loaded data. And this also has to find the information in the large set of loaded, loaded data. So we're using similar technology there. What are the domains and topics to which the demonstration is limited at this point? So right now we took the last five years of patent data. It's about 2 million documents. And that's what the data set is that we process for this limited pilot release. And if the patent is for a process that might be expressed as software or something, can the discovery find the code? Or if it's a patent that might be mechanical or chemical where there's a diagram, can it find the diagrams? So our system as it is now is using just the textual descriptions. The diagrams is a really interesting use case. Uh, I know that USPTO is extremely interested in it. And we have research technology that looks at the relationship of diagrams to one another, but that's not ready to deploy in our system yet. We're very excited about it because we know that that's upcoming technology that will be out in the near future. We're speaking with Graham Katz. He's the data and AI technology delivery lead for the expert labs team at IBM. And you mentioned that you search patents that are already there. And I guess we're up to almost, I think, north of 11 million patents now. I was there for the 10 millionth ceremony, but it's accelerating. What about prior art or art that is not patented, that's out there that might be rivaling what it is that an inventor asserts? Should they care about that? They should totally care about that. And that is a real challenge, partially for AI technology, such as what we have. When you have a set of documents that you can load in and do the analysis that's closed, even the 10 million, or I think it's even up to 17 million, when you look at the applications as well, that's a feasible amount to load into a, a data system. But if you're looking at all of the potential prior art, that requires more than just the natural language processing of the existing art, but the ability to find it. And then there are issues about copyright and so on that come into play. For many years, we had a stream of news data that we did at the natural language processing of every week. And we would use that as the basis for looking at prior art for things that were published in the news feeds. Uh, but that's really only a small selection. So the challenge you've identified is a big one. So the basic utility then that this demonstration offers is for inventors to see if something is already patented that is close to what they're trying to do and maybe head off applications that don't have much of a chance. Absolutely. And the other side of the utility is to facilitate any of this for a novice patenter. So one of the USPTO's sort of missions is to expand the range of people who can even be involved in the process to accelerate inventing and to democratize the invention process. And another piece of our technology that we've been using is our conversational AI technology that guides the novice inventor through the inventing process. So that's even more important in some sense than the patent query is the guiding of the user through the inventing process. What are the things that you need to do to find prior art? What should you look at in the landscape? What is the meaning of terminology in the patent domain? What is an assignee? What is a CPC code? And we have a conversational AI that answers those questions. 
for the novice user. And that's a real innovation here. So it's not a stretch to say this is really an important customer experience extension for the Patent and Trademark Office. Exactly, exactly. Because patenting has such unique and specific terminology. You know, prior art means something very specific. SINE means something specific. Application, grant, all mean have specific meanings. Um, and the process itself, you know, I, I do patenting myself as an IBMer. We encourage that. The processing itself is something you need to learn. And we at IBM support the USPTO's mission goal of expanding that invention space. And what is presented to the user? Is there a website they can go to when you type something in a search box? Is it that simple? It's sort of that simple. There is a website that you go to. The program that Scott Bellavio set up, the chief of enterprise advanced analytics, has this website that has a number of vendors providing their advanced technology in a sort of pilot program approach. And our technology is one of those on the website. And it, anybody out there right now can go to the website at developer.uspto.gov and look at our IP advisor demonstration system. It comes right. up. It's got a little user interface. It's got a chat bot with it. All right. I'm going to try it myself Let me <laughs> in a few minutes. We'd love to get feedback on that. That's one of the goals of the USPTO in this is to get technology out there that maybe hadn't been used in the patenting domain and see if it's useful for the general public. Sure. And, and it's so going to be up till November 30th, correct? That's correct. It's up till November 30th. And we're really excited to have users get on the system and sure. kick the tires. And a final question. When you put in a search, does it take milliseconds or do you have to wait a week till all of this gets compiled and returned? And what form does the return take? So we've got three different sort of technologies. There's prior art, there's landscape analysis, there's similar patents, and the return takes a, a couple seconds to come back and you'll see it. And the prior art lists the prior art. The similar patents allows you to compare patents and what's similar among them. Um, the landscape analysis gives you a graph of who the assignees are in a space and what the key terminology is in that space. Graham Katz is the Data and AI Technology Delivery Lead for the Expert Labs team at IBM. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that website at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Shane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. 
Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know. In retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think it would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, 
I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders, and then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals, um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I 
had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.